welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. So this week we are covering the Thomas Tulin case, and this episode is called Death on the Grey Lady. It was October 25th, 2004. A thick fog had rolled into Nantucket and blanketed her in a gloomy shroud. Beth Lochtefeld knew that it was him. She couldn't quite believe that the quaint safety of her rented Nantucket cottage had been invaded violently. Did she fight or try to flee? Or did a certain frozen disbelief flood her when she faced the tall man in the doorway wielding a knife? It was a murder that made no sense to anyone, a most unlikely victim in a most unlikely place. The name Nantucket literally means in Native American, far away soil tempting no one. It's so funny. Laura, the irony, because given the concentration of wealth, especially sort of in the summer yachting season, Nantucket is like the go-to Tony place to go. It's it's really staggering. I think know? it's the most expensive real estate in Massachusetts. I would not be yeah, surprised at sure. all. Settled by Quakers in 1690, Nantucket's subdued charms are just simple, and the whole aesthetic is very simple New England clabbered houses, beautiful. The first influx of wealth was through whaling in the 1800s. So the whaling empire made the merchants in Nantucket into millionaires. And this is in the 19th century. It's like the billionaires of today. Absolutely. And of course, it's where Herman Melville's wonderful Moby Dick is takes place. <laughs> Listen, everybody says, like, Moby Dick, oh, it is hilarious. Read that book. It I is read the Crib so... Notes in college. Uh, no, no. I could never get through that book. I'm, it's not something I'm going to be reading Read for, it. It's like for one of the fun most... at this point in my life. No, it's one of the most darkly funny books I, I have ever read, okay. and it takes place on Nantucket. I, and, well, I love Nantucket. Yeah. Beth Lochtefeld was born April 9th, 1960. Beth's father is an artist, and the Lochtefelds spent summers on Nantucket. And this, you have to think, like, Nantucket, this is sort of 60s, 70s. It wasn't like the super fancy Nantucket. That sort of came a little bit later on. It's it, true, but it was always a fairly exclusive place, I feel. I mean, it, I, went, yeah. well, I went there as a kid, and it always had a certain vibe. And I wouldn't call the vibe money. I would just call the vibe, like, very New England, kind of a salty... Yeah. You know, yeah. lead back vibe. Well, Martha's Vineyard was like kind of the hippie place. Nantucket was, you no, know, the people who had a house there since 1850 right, kind right. of thing. But the Lochtefelds were very down to earth. And, and Beth Lochtefeld herself, she was very 
in looking at pictures of her from the summer spent on Nantucket, she's very tomboyish, kind of blonde, cute, holding up mm. a big fish, very genuine. And there was nothing fancy in Nantucket about the Lochtefelds. I really picture Beth fishing and listening to Fleetwood Mac and going to bonfires and, you know, having her first kiss on the beach. Like I said, like the Lochtefelds were not, like they weren't fancy Nantucket people. And though they were technically not islanders, they really weren't off-island people either. But they were definitely not part of like the whole yacht and Chino summer people. Right, but they were were the summer people. They were there every summer. Yeah, but for a long time, I think they were more, I guess the whole definition of like off-islander or on-islander for Nantucket people is like, you really have to be there for like 100 years to be considered Mm -hmm. like an islander, you know. So Beth was very, very smart, worked on restaurants in Nantucket. People just like really loved her, like really loved her energy. Yeah. Graduated from Notre Dame. That's right. And then she shortly thereafter moved to Manhattan and she was in a business. I just want to, I think this is so great. She was in a business that was basically, imagine a business, it was the coding for buildings for it was like the co-op business in new york right and these are the business codes so people don't think you're like coding on a computer these are the business codes to get permits and have things done in in new york city which is a highly complex system highly complex and incredibly corrupt and the description in the book is like beth is there with like a bunch of tony sopranos Like, it's all mob, it's all corrupt, it's all New York, and she's there, she's very innocent, she's very hardworking, earnest, very smart, in her heels and her business suit. She just figures out a very logical coding system for architects to figure out buildings in New York. This was a business that she built, and she eventually, she lives in Manhattan for for a while, really builds this business, buys condos herself, co-ops, I guess, in, in Manhattan. Then she sells the business and does very well. By her early 40s, she's retired. Which is amazing. amazing. I love, though, that she worked in this really corrupt business. But just by being really, by working really hard, being honest, people trusted her. Like, that's how she built her business. I think it's fabulous. Oh, no. But Beth did not have the same, quote unquote, luck with men that she did with business. And even though she's attractive, clearly intelligent, successful, fun, cool. And I think by the time Beth was 44, and I'll probably get some flack for (laughs) saying that, but I do, I know so many women from my generation who at the age of 40 went, oh my gosh, oh shit. I just think we were, our generation was also pushed that you can have it all. And it's just not really, and a lot of women I know just put their careers, made that such a priority. And by the time they were kind of ready to look for a mate and to have a family, they couldn't find somebody, you know, they were, they were in their late thirties and that it was difficult. And I think Beth kind of found herself in that situation where she had prioritized her career for many years and had built this really successful career. And now she was retired and financially stable, but she didn't have anyone to share that with. Look, if you're a woman and you know, it's all about career, you know, you don't want to have a family, you don't really care, more power to you. But if you if you do want to sort of have a partner and a family and, and that doesn't happen, it's a hard position to be in. Absolutely. It's absolutely. And it's a position a lot of women find themselves in. 
And I think Beth did find herself in that position by the time she meets Tom, who we're going to talk about shortly. Yeah, no, absolutely. She was 44. And a friend of hers, a mutual friend of hers said, hey, listen, I think I have met the guy for you, right? So she introduces Beth to Thomas Tulin, who was seven years her junior. So at this point, she's 44. Tulin is 37. And I think he just swept her off her feet. Tulin was was a tall, kind of good looking, and wait for it, an Ivy League graduate. (laughs) I think he was a walking red flag and there was a lot of magical thinking going on. (laughs) You're such a cynic. I do. I think he was kind of a hot mess, but he had this facade of pedigree and of education that Covered that up somewhat, but I think that we have to crazy talk. poked through. Laura, we have to talk him up first before we pull him yeah, down. Yeah, okay. true. All right, so let's talk. What was Thomas Tulin's resume? He had all the right resume points, right? He was from Manhattan. He had graduated from Columbia. His parents had started the Berkeley Carroll School. So tell us a little bit about the Berkeley Carroll School. Well, his mother had started the Carroll School and then eventually had merged with the Berkeley School. It was a small private school in Brooklyn. And this had built to become a a competitive private school that now demands 50, I think, $7,000 a year. So in a lot of ways, although maybe his parents weren't incredibly wealthy, I'm not sure if I can overestimate the amount of power his mother had as the admissions director to this prestigious private school in Brooklyn. I read that parents would sit, would spend the night in their cars outside of the school to be the first in line when the application process opened. Look, I lived in Manhattan and had a child raised her in Manhattan. I've seen parents have breakdowns in the park over their three-year-old's test score. It's bad. It's very, very bad. (laughs) My daughter was interviewed at three for preschool. But my point is, is that I think he grew up a very entitled kid and he had parents who had a lot of power in the community because his mother was friends with the likes of the Chuck Schumer and all kinds of important people. And those powerful people, she knew and powerful people wanted to be in her best regard. Thomas Tulin really pretty early on seemed to be taking a really deviant path. He was, the first kind of signs were he, you know, he spent some time in France as an exchange student in high school, and he went on a hot air balloon trip with some friends, and he held, he like, pulled this girl up and over the balloon like he was going to throw her out. He was holding her legs, but still it was like he was going to throw her out. He just exhibited this really sort of bizarre... Dangerous. I think it's more than bizarre. I think he exhibited... He exhibited that he also like enjoyed scaring people. He used to run up behind people and shout at them to get reactions. So this is like a kind of sadistic behavior that he was showing. And very he young. was very much into humiliating women. He was. Well, and you know? he 
really never had any consequences for it. And a lot of it just kind of got looked at as, oh, these are prep school pranks. No, I think in his mind, it was just like, oh, boys will be boy, like drunken antics kind of thing. I think in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. But he got himself into Columbia. He did, but you know? he was also, you know, he was kicked out of Colby. Okay, he was kicked out of he Colby. He was kicked out of Colby. I mean, he had signs early, and I think it got writ. I think that the his family thought it was his drinking, but I think there were behavioral problems that went beyond the drinking. Yeah, I agree. But again, to go back to that resume, to go back to, okay, went to Columbia, then he goes and gets a job at Smith Barney, which is a big, what is Smith Barney? I Like high finance. Yeah, investment stuff, company. Investment bank, company. Yeah. Hedge fund stuff, whatever they I've do. I've known so many people who work there, and I can't even. I can't it. either. <laughs> it's where it's where people make the money. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Wall Street. You money. know. Yeah. Yeah. So he was part of that for a long time, and kind of coming and going, but drinking the whole time, and really sort of he drank really alcoholically. Oh, too. definitely from the start, and had consequences, lost jobs, but he knew powerful people, and this is where we talk about that privilege where he was given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and he just kept blowing it. Yeah, he kept blowing mm-hmm. it, and it's such a strange... I'm just going to take a little tiny detour here that I'm reading. It's Martha Stout, her The Sociopath Next Door, and now I'm reading her follow-up book, and it really gives such an insight to so many of these cases that we look at, and I'm kind of looking at Thomas Tulin and going... And and Stout's point is really interesting, Laura. What she says is like, evil is not something that is like manifested outside of us. It's a lack. It's a lack within a certain person. Mm -hmm. And you wonder if somebody like Tulin just lacks that empathy or they lack that, whatever that thing, that lack of inhibition with the drinking. And look, I'm no psychiatrist, but I am reading this and it does resonate with me in looking at these cases. Oh, yeah, and I think there was a lot of anger and rage there, and it mm-hmm. it came out when he was drinking, and he never, he would go on the wagon or where he wouldn't drink for a period of time, but that never lasted long enough for him to really resolve any of these issues in his life. And I'm sure, like, I, <laughs> and I kind of, I kind of feel like I relate in a way. I feel like I can see him, like, one of his favorite watering holes in New York was a place called the Dubliner where there was, like, a huge, like, Irish harp. I can see, the, like, the whole, like, romance of oh, the, yeah, like, yeah. the drunken afternoon and, like, the faded Brooks Brothers and the fedora. Apparently wore a fedora. Yeah, he was, he, And, yeah. like, a ascot. No. Nobody should wear an ascot ever. <laughs> like, unless you're in the royal family, you shouldn't wear an ascot. I think he had all these symbols of, like, outward respectability, but inward. Tulin was completely at sea. But he was also very affected. He he played up that image of wealth because, you know, that mask was important to him. Oh, God, I yeah. Mean, he almost overdressed for things. He Yeah. He went too far, which is almost a giveaway, especially to people who do have money, because he tried too hard. Yes, no, absolutely. Uh, but when he met Beth... Tulin had been working out at the gym. And what gym is that? New York Athletic Club. People who don't know, the New York Athletic Club, which was, I, I won't go into every detail, I won't Wikipedia, but founded in the 1800s. 
I mean, we figure we're there are 10 million people in New York. There's 8,000 members, and it's invitation only. Wow. And I yeah. think we can imagine it's a very waspy club. They admitted women finally, I think, in the 80s. They have been given a hard time about discriminating against other races and religions. This is kind of like old money, waspy New York. This is kind of right out of the Dominic Dunn novel. Oh, absolutely. You know, so this is... And it, it comes into play later on. Right, and Tulin's so. parents and Tulin all were members, his family, and he hung out there. In any case, Tulin had been sober for six months and had been working out. He had, like, lost a bunch of weight. He was in really good shape when he met Beth. And I'm sure Beth thought, hey, what a catch, because he looked good on paper. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure, look, I'm sure she was drinking too. It was all a party on the vineyard. I mean, those are good times. Absolutely, and I'm sure for Tulin, he thought, this is ideal. Beth had achieved the success that he could not. She was basically retired at 44. I'm sure he really liked her, and I'm sure he liked the fact that she was financially comfortable, too. And somehow, maybe he found some kind of funny redemption, in a way, by being with her. Like, she's successful, finally, can kind of, like, maybe just... Park his boat there. You know what I mean? Just in a funny chill. way. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure he sized it up pretty quickly mm-hmm. that he could just kind of like move on into her life and be taken care of. Right. And I'm sure he charmed her and vice versa. And I think Beth also liked her wine, no judgment, but perhaps she could handle it and he couldn't because they started drinking together. And Tulin became a different person when he was drinking. This is something Beth, I think, didn't know. I think she bought into that whole narrative of like, oh, ha, 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 ha. Because one of the, quote, antics, Tulin's antics, was he stole like an $80,000 bust from a, a party at a gallery or something in New York. Like he slipped it under his coat and then was caught for it. And like he lost jobs because of it. Right, and but... he was always just kind of like laughed it off to these kind of youthful pranks. Well, youthful pranks, this isn't quite as amusing when you're in your 30s and you're losing your jobs and you're, you know, your life is just surrounded by consequences. And I think he might have seen her as what could have been a stabilizing force. But he couldn't control his own behavior, and that became apparent very quickly. Very quickly. And as time went on, they took a, supposed to take a trip to California together, I think, to take a trip away together. He couldn't even get himself together to make the flights. I think Beth was kind of like, whoa, what have I gotten myself She into? found a gun in his apartment. And this is where I think that we talk about the outside masking so much of what's inside because when we tell you all this information, it almost seems like, wow, why weren't you running screaming? But, the, but this was all packaged in this really nice package. Oh, yeah. This, this well-dressed, was- handsome suit probably with the Burberry scarf and and how many times do we see this Laura yeah this is... it's a tendency to think somebody like that is doing better than they are although I think some of it was her own magical thinking that she could get maybe make him a little better or he was you know work prog- he was a work in progress right a work in progress yeah. And underestimating how severe it was. Yeah. Until she started to see that it it was kind of like love bombing. But quickly that mask slips off. It slips off. And I think the alcohol takes that mask off very fast Mm -hmm. for him. He can't be a dignified Ivy Leaguer when he's full of booze. Dignified? (laughs) Dignified? I don't know if he was dignified. We never talked about that part. 
So Laura, Beth was really seeing these red flags on these trips that she and Tulin took to California. I think he was too drunk, he couldn't make the flights, and I think she really, it, it gave her pause. You made a great point when we were talking now that this is a very short-lived relationship. Basically, it's six weeks. So she goes to California with him, he's chain-smoking, he's drunk the whole time. This is not the romantic, let's solidify this relationship trip she had hoped for. It's pretty much a shit show, and you have to be pretty drunk to be missing flights. He's a full-blown alcoholic, and I think it, it, the mask is coming off, and she's really starting to see him for who he is. I, exactly, and, and even more concerning than that, she finds a gun in his apartment in, in Manhattan. Big he, red flag. Big red flags that are coming up for her. And he, given how short of a relationship this is, he also makes this very like awkward marriage proposal to her at the Met. It's too soon for her. I don't think she wants to junk the relationship. She wants to give it a chance. And I'm sure she sort of looked at him like a fixer-upper type of thing, or I can change him. I think that she, you know, she's 44 years old, never married, no children. And I really think she had her own kind of wishful thinking with this relationship. I mean, from the outside, he looked perfect. He was educated. And I think she was just really hopeful that this would work out. And I think as as the red flags came up and he started to show his true colors, I can relate. She was she she didn't really want to see it at first. And you made such a good point that it's like it was a six week relationship. And in other words, what did you say? I said for six. Most of us, that's a mistake, right? We have like our six week mistakes. But for her, this little kind of six-week relationship obviously was deadly, and this is not anything she could have ever, or people around her could have anticipated how, how toxic he truly was. And I think we talked about the fact that she was kind of a last chance for him. He had screwed up job after job. He had been given every opportunity and blown them all. Well, I think also, keep in mind, both Tulin and Beth were Catholics. And so they had that not only in common, perhaps she kind of looked at this as him as sort of saving her love life. And and he looked at her really as his savior. His life was a mess. And if she embraced him, he could just kind of move on into her really kind of clean, well-manicured life. And her life would legitimize his. Absolutely. For his family. Remember, he comes from a prominent family. His friends... This could kind of make everything look good for him. So I think she represented a lot more than just a woman or a relationship to him. But things really go downhill. In um, October 23rd, he's drunk. They both go back to Tulin's apartment in Manhattan. And he essentially kidnaps her. He will not let her leave the apartment. So I think any doubts that Beth had at this point it becomes physical. I think she realizes this guy is really unhinged. She waits until he falls asleep, i.e. passes out, and then she slips off at four o'clock in the morning and goes, flees back to Nantucket. Absolutely. I think this is when she, and I think many of us get into situations which we think are harmless, but I think at this point she realizes that he could be quite dangerous. And this is when she starts to try to protect herself. She sneaks out, she goes to Nantucket, and she stays at her brother's house, which is a smart move. And she inquires about getting a restraining order. She does. She does. She doesn't follow through on it. 
times. And let's mention she had just come home from her brother's. She had stayed at her brother's, decided it was safe, decided she was kind of in the clear, and gone back to her place. And that's when she goes to the post office that day, tells them she's sending her psycho boyfriend his stuff. Like, she is done. Done, done, done. Mm -hmm. Gonna clear him out, ready to move on with my life, having zero idea that he is on his way to come get her. And let's keep in mind that little house she rents is very small and secluded. Yes, yeah. She has a neighbor who is the owner of the place, but she it is kind of in a secluded area, and she's living there alone, so going to her brother's does provide a lot more comfort and safety. She inquires about the restraining order because Thomas Tulin is calling her constantly. He's apologizing, he's trying to get her on the phone, and she won't answer. This is all very typical yeah. alcoholic behavior. He's He's remorseful he he's saying anything and doing anything to try to get her back to try to fix his life and and meanwhile he's devolving he actually makes this sort of big showy demonstration at the new york athletic club that he's gonna jump you know gonna jump off the roof and and it, all this sort of drama and histrionics he's getting drunk at the dubliner and 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 basically crying into his beers about right and his family rushes in and they're, and they're talking about another treatment center i think this one's in aruba or some exotic place they're gonna come in and try to rescue him again yes you know he's not getting thrown to the sharks he's gonna be rescued Laura, then this next part blows my mind, okay? He goes to LaGuardia, right? Drunk as a skunk, by the way. And this is on the 24th of October, yeah. 2004. So Tulin goes to LaGuardia, drunk as a skunk, mind you, has a huge knife. Post right? 9-11, let's add. No, this is, no, this is three short years yeah. after 9-11. When, and, when security was at its high, I remember flying then and it was a nightmare. Oh, it was a nightmare. So he, he has this giant knife. It's confiscated at LaGuardia. And he's just sort of sent home. Why do you have this big knife? Oh, I'm, he gives it all these different reasons. I'm going fishing. It's to cut up a birthday cake. All this absurd kind of stuff. And they don't do anything. It, the next day, he flies to Nantucket the knife okay i'm sorry this is three years after 9 11 and you're letting some big scary drunk dude with a big knife board a flight and th this is where we were talking about this is again the mask of privilege he looked correct right he looked fine right because he's got the brooks brothers outfit sure. on and he's mr nantucket and he's got his nantucket pink shirt on right not whatever not a yell. high crime area we're not talking about going into like south central no <laughs> but also like i do like kind of have to say i think it's like if a muslim guy was trying to get on the plane from Manhattan, hello, to Nantucket with a big knife, you think he wouldn't have gone on some list of like, do not freaking let this guy fly? Perhaps our black man, uh, you yeah. know, or woman. I, I think if Ed, this had been somebody else, they definitely, they, that airline definitely, there's not much they could actually do, but they could have barred him from flying. And uh, and, and they didn't. They, they totally basically, didn't. it's appalling. And Post 9-11. Post I mean, this, this does blow my mind. So he gets to Nantucket that day, and that is October 25th of 2004. He goes and he rents a car, buys a knife at a fishing supply store. This is very premeditated. Very... We deal with a lot of cases that are just rage, or often we don't know, but there's really no clear premeditation. I mean, this is very thought out. Yes. Even when he's turned away from LaGuardia, that gave him like a whole night. To kind of come down and think about what he's doing. But no, he doubles down. He goes back the next day. 
As Thomas Tulin entered Beth's rented cottage on Hawthorne Lane, he could hear her in the back bedrooms. As soon as he saw her, the attack began, and it was brutal. Beth was a fighter, but she was virtually trapped back in the bedroom. In all, Beth sustained 23 knife wounds, and slashes to her arms attest to her trying to defend herself. Although trapped, she did get past Tulin and was 10 feet away from escape when he grabbed her by the head and dealt the fatal blows. Beth's body was found in the front living room. Her cause of death was severe loss of blood. Later, investigators knew that the attack had begun in the back bedroom because of a large amount of blood found on a mattress. Covered in blood, Tulin took a shower, changed out of his bloody clothes, and left in the rental. From there, he flew to Hyannis, rented a Chevy Impala, and stopped at a liquor store for some booze. Back on Nantucket, Beth was discovered pretty quickly. She had an appointment at one o'clock, and when she hadn't left, her neighbor and landlady became alarmed and called Beth's brother, who called the police. Beth's murder was the first murder in Nantucket in 20 years. Meanwhile, an APB was put out on Tolan's rented Chevy Impala. He was pulled over in Rhode Island, and there was no doubt in anyone's mind who had killed Beth. So we hope you've enjoyed part one of the Tulin case. We are actually stepping away from the Tulin case, but we will be back to you guys with the second part of it. In the meantime, Laura and I are both diving in on this Harvard Medical School morgue manager case who has been accused of stealing and selling human remains. We couldn't resist, so we're stepping away to dive on that. We'll come back at you with some breaking news on that. And Laura and I are both thanking the the gods of weird news here. Anyway, thanks again for listening and all your support. Murder, murder, murder.